The conventional narrative of the African novel's development begins around the time that colonialism ends, usually dating from the late 1950s. It is often structured around a tension between cultural diffusion and cultural consolidation, which is to say between hybridistic or cosmopolitan and more nativist or nationalist ways of defining the form's response to British imperial rule. The nuances and blind spots of these broad strokes positions, not mine, have been dissected ad nauseum, and it's not my intention to take a side again in this chapter. I begin here, rather, to establish a baseline for how an African novelistic genealogy, whose terms derive from the independence era, circumscribes even critical debate, entrenching truisms that do not hold up in broader historical framings. This familiar opposition of multiplicity and resistance, which has its oft-cited academic corollary in post-colonial theory versus more hardline or Afrocentric schools of thought, in fact foregrounds a common critical practice that sees individual subjects in fiction as stand-ins for a social situation. The individual is instrumentalized by the African novel, not instrumental of some analytic function within it. At its best, the tendency to read African characters as social microcosms has provided a useful foil to Eurocentric literary standards, often limitedly rooted in psychological depth to demonstrate character development. At its worst, however, it has led to a bias toward seeing African writing as transparently sociological, rather than as depicting a complex negotiation between shaping and being shaped by the world. You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique Encounter narrative. Today's conversation is with Jean Marie Jackson, a literary critic and scholar of world literature who teaches in the Department of English at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. She has published extensively on African literature, philosophy, and politics in both scholarly and popular venues. Her first book, South African Literature's Russian Soul Narrative Forms of Global Isolation, is a compelling comparative study creating intellectual space within which it is possible to connect the motifs and imperatives of 19th century Russian realist literature to the literature of South Africa in the apartheid era and the post-colonial moment. Her new book, which we'll be discussing today, was published in early 2021 with Princeton University Press and is titled The African Novel of Ideas, Philosophy and Individualism in the Age of Global Writing. Jean-Marie, hello. Hi, how nice are you? To see you or hear you, I guess. <laughs> yes. Well, I really appreciate you making time to uh, talk to me today about your new book. Um, I think it's a really fantastic book. Uh, I actually really loved reading it, and um, it's outside of my own personal uh, specialties as a scholar. But it's really one of these books that I think is um, it. Uh, 
is readable from multiple perspectives, from philosophers, cultural theorists, Africanists, but also diasporic thinkers. And I really appreciate that. I, I learned a lot. And for me, that's that's a mark of a really great book is its capacity to, to really teach as well as advance scholarship. So thank you for saying that. I think one of the things that I wanted to do with the book was to um, have it be readable uh, by Africanists, you know, kind of the, the most hardcore people working in um, a more area studies vein, or in my case, tends to be intellectual historians, oftentimes um, people I see at the African studies association or the African literature association but then also have it be something that I could find real common ground through with comparatist friends and more general sort of post-colonial um, philosophers and historians. And needless to say, that is not an easy thing to, to do. And one always wonders whether you, they've gotten the balance quite right. So um, yeah. if, if it worked to any degree with you, then I feel extremely gratified. Well, it really did. Um, you know, I my, myself, my PhD is in my sensibility as a thinker and writer is uh, in philosophy. So, you know, I was really drawn by um, the book precisely because, uh, or specifically because of its of its invocation of philosophy across the book. And so one of the, the first question I want to ask you, which is in some ways a kind of autobiographical or personal narrative question, is why African literature and philosophy? You know, what drew you to these texts, right? The particular literary works that you're concerned with, but also why the frame of philosophy? You know, what, what is it about framing African literature, these particular works of African literature in terms of philosophy? You know, what motivated you to that? And ultimately, what do you think it draws out of those texts that we wouldn't otherwise see? Yeah, um, a lot of great interlinked questions. First, on the most basic level, I was trained in a comparative literature department. That's where I did my doctorate, um, which people used to joke with us was philosophy light. Um, not the philosophers in graduate school. They didn't even know that we existed for the most part. <laughs> uh, but people from other humanities departments. Um, at the same time, as we were reading a lot of it, um, and it was a big part of my qualifying exams, it was mainly what philosophers would you know, shorthand as, as continental stuff. Um, so I qualified in hermeneutic phenomenology, for example, um, okay. and then very, very slowly after I had started my current job, started reading around and what would typically be grouped as more analytic um, sorts of philosophical texts. Um, African philosophy is particularly interesting when you think about that really, really broad strokes division. And I realize it's not a division that often holds up, um, especially when you're talking about philosophers working in a, a what we might call a post-colonial or a decolonial vein. Um, but the big stars of African philosophy are, are analytically trained, right? So someone like Kwame Anthony Appiah is the most famous example. Kwesi Redu, who we recently lost, was Gilbert Ryle's student. Um, when you move into someone like Emmanuel Chukwudiese, he's working really from kind of a, a phenomenological tradition um, that is bridging analytic and continental styles mm -hmm. of thought or styles of writing. Um, and so I ended up getting more deeply into the weeds of professional or academic philosophy than I had been exposed to or invited to do as a comparatist, um, especially working in a, a comparative literature department. I'm, I'm now in, in English um, just by the <laughs> happenstance of, of the sure. job market. Sure. 
Um, and more and more, I started to feel like the conversations among and between African philosophers. Um, so for me, the Legon school, um, Uredu, also someone like Kwame Jeche, um, Eze, Apia were the primary examples. <laughs> we're having the conversations that I wished we were having in African literature and in African literary studies. Um, and yet there was virtually no work that put the two into conversation. Um, again, in that uh, uh, kind of fine-grained analytic way, right? Or people yeah. who were trained yeah. as academic philosophers, as opposed to thinking more within the broader terrain of African thought traditions, say. Um, yes. And that's not a, a pejorative understanding of what that would mean at all. Um, it just mm -hmm. seemed to me a big gap in the literature in the African humanities, um, broadly construed. And so I set out to figure out what the most obvious bridges were between the two branches of the academic humanities, um, African literary studies and African philosophy, and people who might have jobs as African philosophers, right? Jobs in philosophy departments. Um, and I increasingly thought, okay, what we're missing here is some sense of clarity um, and a premium on argument not being coded as bad in, in, yeah. in some way, not being coded as, um, as Occidentalist, um, as sort of liberal, capital L, in ways that have very clear colonial balances, all the things that I think working within post-colonial or decolonial thought or critical theory tend to happen, right? You get a lot of straw men, a lot of boogeymen. Um, that yeah. simply don't hold up when you go to Legon in the 1970s and 1980s, when you go to sort of early work by Apia, um, you know, so, so long before something like In My Father's House. Um, and I then wanted to see African literature as in some sense, not just a conversational partner with African philosophy and all of these really influential at the time disciplinary debates that they had undergone, um, but as... Uh, a, a kind of redemptive space for African philosophy that had not, I think, been as widely received by other humanists as it should have been at the time. The number of African literature scholars or literature scholars, or let's get even bigger, critical theory scholars who have ever read Emmanuel Eze is, is vanishingly small. And that's yeah. a real shame. Um, so I, 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 got some, I got some juice behind it from that angle, you might say. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you talk about it that way because one of the things I, I think as a as a philosopher and critical theorist in a in a more diasporic more of a diasporic context, but it also um, overlaps so much with what you're saying, which is this kind of approach. And one of the things I would love to see philosophers get from the book, right? If they if if people if philosophers can get eyes on your book, is the way it makes a really um, compelling and convincing argument for an expansion of the philosophical archive. That rather than thinking of, of philosophy as something that's in a kind of style, rhetorical structure of a text, which I think is very much the Anglo-American approach to what philosophy is. Mm -hmm. Ironically, that's a literary distinction, mm -hmm. right? Not a philosophical distinction. <laughs> but I think you retrieve this sense in which uh, it really deeply in which African literature, the literature, the literary pieces you're talking about function philosophically. That as you say, it's not just a conversation between philosophy here, literature on the other side, but the way in which this sort of event of African thought is literary and philosophical 
um, not even at the same time because they don't have to happen simultaneously. It's like they are embedded in in one another in important ways. I think this is a diasporic lesson, but I, it's, but it, I, it is especially needed in thinking about African thought as a history of ideas. You know, that, 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 that's absolutely right. And I mean, I think, so in my, we'll talk about this later, but in my, my next book and what I'm working on right now, I'm moving much more into um, an intellectual historical domain. And that in many ways was a very natural progression, I think um, within, within the history of the African humanities. So, um, but what the novel does that I think the best of African philosophy did which isn't to say that African philosophy isn't still happening. I have friends who are employed as, you know, in, in philosophy departments, especially on the continent, who are, who are working in it. But I, I think it's fair to say that its most formative era has passed. Um, we're losing a lot of the, the kind of golden age, age figures, obviously. Rado's death makes that um, abundantly clear, and I suspect we'll see some more public writing on that in the next few weeks, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but what African philosophy and the novels that I'm working with both do exceptionally well is enforce um, a separability of elements. And by that, I mean that they are not doing um, what I think of in my private time as the kind of phenomenological blur approach to capturing experience. Right. Um, um, a lot of the most prominent African novels in the past, I don't know, half decade, decade or so, maybe have been richly poetic, um, have been about trying to capture uh, uh, the the guts of what it feels like to move through the world. I think of something like uh, The Dragonfly Sea by Yvonne um, Adyambo War. Um, and that's not what I'm working with, which again, mm-hmm. isn't to cast a negative light on more poetic um, texts that are working in a more continental vein, you might say. To say that one thing the novel can do really well that someone like Kwesi Redu or Apia does really, really well is to say, hey, here's a chance to deliberately break down ideas into their constituent mm-hmm. parts, um, to almost deliberately, naively adopt a greater separability or discreteness of elements of experience and of thought than might be available to us in living um, or in, in writing in a way that's meant to capture a sense of living. Um, and, and to work with those uh, to get to their natural conclusions. Um, so the idea that abstraction can be part of a novel in an extremely delineated, um, actually spatial way. Uh, there's a lot of work on this way back in the day in, in Russian literature, where ideas take up actual room on a page in a novel of ideas, right? They are not yeah. only embedded um, in our experience of interacting with each other and going through life, we have this luxury of, of drawing them out, of laying them out um, in in ways that we can't get at <laughs> when we are just kind of involved in conversations in the day-to-day, um, and that there is a real value to doing that, to kind of slowing down and taking that space. Um, and so someone like Tendai Wuchu, who is a Zimbabwean novelist who starts off uh, my introductory chapter of the African novel of ideas, will have philosophy circles where he's, he's on purpose, um, you know, setting them outside of the hustle and bustle of a Harare street. Not because it's mm-hmm. not important um, to represent what it means to be in the hustle and bustle of present day Harare, but because he wants to do something different. And they sit in a circle and they start talking about um, Boethius, in his case, often comes up uh-huh. um, and saying, okay, 
let's have this term, this term, and this term, right? A, B, and C in play. Mm -hmm. Let's braid them together um, in a way that can get us to some conclusion that we only then bring into a more applied domain. Mm -hmm. um, and it's done in, 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 such a, in such a marked way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is something that philosophy does that is distinct from what, again, to use a really broad term, theory more often does, where it's uh -huh. trying to reckon with the full braiding of elements as it's already happening. Philosophy is, is breaking them down. Um, and so that's what I wanted to capture moving between the two forms, right? I mean, the comparative African philosophical essay and the explicitly African philosophical novel. Hope that makes some sense. Yeah, no, that's completely fascinating. I think it's a really instructive um, way of making a, a theory as it appears in sort of comparative literature programs and philosophy as sort of more rigidly practiced. And I don't mean rigid in a, um, a pejorative sense. I think I think rigid is actually a really important thing for certain yeah, sure. kinds of disciplinary approaches. Um, so I think that's really helpful. I do have to say when you said, uh, use that phrase philosophy light, uh, as a <laughs> philosophy PhD student, um, <laughs> you know, uh, European philosophy uh, program. Yeah, we may have said that about comp lit people. <laughs> Ironically, now my secondary appointment is in comparative lit. So, <laughs> so I'm back to philosophy light, I guess. Yeah, um, so I, I, I think we're, I have a couple of close friends and sort of frequent interlocutors who are really hardcore analytic philosophers. I mean, you know, Femi Taiwo and, and Liam Kofi Bray and. In some ways, they have been my North Star for writing and presenting this book. I also wanted the book to be intelligible to them. Not that it would match what they were doing, right? Um, I, I just don't have that kind of training. I'm, I'm not trained in, in, in analytic, Phil. Um, but to Isn't at that, least be able to find some common ground. <laughs> yeah, you mean the younger uh, Femi? Yes, yes, yes. There is, of course, the older um, Olafemi Taiwo, who has also been a big influence on my own work. Um, especially, you know, his sort of seminal work on, on Hegel and, and um, how do we get past just saying, well, Hegel was wrong, Hegel was racist, which, of course, um, and what does that actually mean for what we then need to fill in in the field of African philosophy um, if it's not to be a mainly critical or, or uh, negational project, yeah. if you will. And that was also something that I felt really strongly about in terms of the particular philosophers that I wanted my book to be working with and drawing on. Um, mm -hmm, so again, mm -hmm. Oredu and Ize were, um, you know, it, it was momentous for me when I found yeah. them and just realized how much more I had to bring to the table, how much more A game I had to bring then, and no call outs here, you know, I don't like to do that kind of thing, but work in post-colonial or these days decolonial literary studies that will spend a single paragraph on liberalism. Yeah, you know, we know. Okay, it, it it it's bad. It did bad things, and and there it is. Um, you know, kind of footnote Habermas, and it's like, no, Oredo is not going to let you off that hook. You are going to break down. Well, what do you actually mean by that? When you yeah. say democracy or a sort of democratic norm, do you mean a consensual, right, kind of consensus baked democracy, or do you mean a majoritarian democracy? Sure. Um, and just parsing significantly finer distinctions. Um, you know, in language as clear as possible to move across disciplines was this challenge that I saw novelists, African novelists rising to, and yet not literary criticism and not literary scholarship. So there seemed to be this real gap between the two. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, my original question, you know, part of it was how does philosophy, you know, what is, what is the point of, of, of framing literary works with philosophy? That's a really fantastic way of thinking about that. It's, it's able to draw out this struggle that the novels themselves are having, that if we read them in these sort of different frames or different registers, sort of. And they're about gradation. You know, that, that's the word that I kept coming back to, too, when I was editing the book and, and, and trying to fine tune on the paragraph to paragraph level is, um, OK, when when do generalizations um, feel earned and when do they not feel earned? And philosophers trained in philosophy pushed me, at least. Um, and certainly the the novelist that I'm often talking to, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm in very frequent conversation in real life with a number of the novelists who are covered in the book, Tendai Huchu, Imran Kuvadia, for example, just because we're both, we're interested in, in, in these same sorts mm-hmm, of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one thing to talk in terms of totality um, and the individual and the collective. Um, and it's another thing to talk in terms of, okay, Jeche, um, for example, how do we define a limited communitarianism, which is one of his big terms, where precisely does a communitarian ethic need to give way to something else? Um, where do analyzes a con talking drums, for example? Um, where precisely do we see the individual yeah. drummer as needing to take over from the codes that he's been taught? And you can't settle for the general term. You then mm-hmm. have to break it down into, okay, where is the point at which um, one term gives way to the next so that we can yeah. then plot or choreograph their interaction in a way that makes formal sense. Yeah. And I, I, again, if you cut your teeth, as I did on reading, you know, critics who are still hugely important to me and reading Lukács or something, um, or um, in Russian literature, you know, I used to read a lot of Bakhtin obviously, and, and so did everyone else for a while, although Bakhtin seems to have uh, faded over, over the past few years. I almost, f- you, you end up working with a lot of major concepts, um, you know, terms that are already aggregative of so much and not necessarily being forced by your um, critical archive to do the work of figuring out what its constituent parts are. Yeah. And a novelist can't do that, right? Or at least a certain kind of novelist. The novelist that I was working with in this book who is interested in this breakdown of where are we doing philosophy, where is philosophy subsumed into something else, it's just um, working with, yeah, a, a, a much broader range of gradations of your terms. Yeah. I realize I, I'm now getting a bit abstract, and so I'll stop, but I think you probably know it. I mean, absolutely. No, it's really interesting. And, um, you know that you mentioned Russian literature, and um, and so I want to. This is again a sort of personal narrative or autobiographical moment, but also, as these always are for for us as writers, also um, theoretical questions and curiosity questions. So I really li- I really liked your first book, South Africa uh, African Literature's Russian Soul. Thank you. I, I picked it up because I was I didn't know Russians were. <laughs> You know, and then, but then I read it, and it's a really, I think, remarkable bit of comparative work. I think if, if people are wondering, you know, how can we do productive comparative work, that's an excellent book to point to because I, I, it's very difficult to do and to do respectful of, you know, South African literature 
and Russian literary sensibilities and practices. I mean, it's to, to be faithful to both of those and also do that comparative work in a creative way. Um, I think it's a fantastic book. One of the things that was interesting then about reading this new book was the shift. While there are comparative dimensions to it, for sure, it is in some ways much more um, direct, you know, much more directly attentive to particular African literary pieces Mm -hmm. rather than a sort of transnational comparative framework, of course. Um, But it, you know, its comparative dimensions are, as you've been talking about in some ways, a sort of, you know, that, that moving back and forth between philosophy and literature. Um, But even that, as you were saying, comes from, attending to the philosophical dimensions of the literary pieces themselves. But my question really is just what motivated this shift? You know, you know, what, in what ways do you understand the books to be different in terms of method and orientation, but also in what ways are the methods and approaches uh, similar across the two? Mm. Yeah. It's something that I thought about a lot of a, a few years ago, and now I feel like I've, I've lost my own plot <laughs> um, in, in some ways, so it's really great to be brought back around to thinking about that that transition, especially as I move towards writing the next book and have to redo some of those um, self-examinations. My first book, South African Literature's Russian Soul, was in every way a labor of love, I think, as really comparative projects often are, um, because you are going so small and so big at the same time. I mean, it, it, it you know, was a revised dissertation, as first books typically, or, or at least often are. Um, and so I had to be accountable, I think, for the better, to experts in a couple different fields that would not at any point have really been in conversations with each other. So South African literature, not Africanist necessarily, but really, um, you know, full, deep, South African is working across yeah. multiple South African languages. I was working in English and Afrikaans. I did studying Kosa and had every intention of getting into the book. And I just didn't feel that my language skills ended up at a place where I could do that and, and sleep well at night. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then, you know, Russianists who are, um, <laughs> the field is changing now, but when I was trained, it was a pretty conservative field. And so to then tell a, a, a Russianist, advisor, uh, not mine, Katarina Clark. Fortunately, she is a pretty, pretty bold woman um, in, in all kinds of ways. But a lot of people were like, you're, you're crazy. You know, like, you're, you're, you're nuts. I mean, <laughs> who writes a book about Russians and Afrikaners? Yeah. Um, and I just felt that I had to go so deep into each side of that comparative equation, if you will. Um, but then the project becomes about building your apparatus along with your reader. And I think that's what comparative literature at its best makes us do, is you have to walk your reader through every step of why in the hell you have taken on this, you know, kind of black box sort of project that you've taken on. Um, And so it means that it is both of minute significance um, I get, or for, I, I stopped because it made me anxious, but for a while I got, you know, Google notifications when that book was cited and I would see people doing really in-depth work and, and Afrikaans, um, scholarship citing it and Russian scholarship citing it. And then you get the kind of people who are also interested in building that, um, apparatus as I've called it, right. That kind of negotiating device, but they don't often as mine was an end up being books that kind of hit the main line of the literary studies discipline as such, because 
people aren't necessarily going to pick up a book about about Afrikaans or even South Africa um, or about Russian without that more explicitly global dimension, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so then moving towards the African novel of ideas, I thought, okay, I want this book to be something that can speak to, um, you know, all sorts of people, not just scholars, but intellectuals of various shades and stripes working in literature writ large. Um, and people with more specific interests in each of these constituent African traditions. So moving mainly between um, Western and Southern Africa, which I have more um, specialized knowledge of. And then there's a long chapter on, on uh, three Eastern African writers um, where I'm comfortable, but, but, but probably have less expertise. Um, and then speak to literature and philosophy. So I feel like I was painting on a broader canvas um, in that sense, even as the second book is um quote unquote narrowed to be africanist in uh, a more obvious way um i feel like being a comparatist and i mean that both in terms of moving across different language traditions uh different intellectual traditions but also in terms of moving across different fields and subfields it's just a matter of always being aware of your aperture um and so you're just constantly uh, uh, widening and narrowing and then widening it out a little bit more and narrowing a tiny bit more. Um, and you're doing that, you know, but by the chapter, not just by yeah. the book, to figure out exactly what that sweet spot is. Um, and so in both books, I'm, I'm doing that, but I'm doing that in different ways. And there really is, it needs to be a, a, a specific uh, qualifier or adjective around to describe the anxiety of that widening oh and then compared yeah, to this context, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a small step. I mean, it's like, that's where all the risk is, but that's also where all the reward is. And that's where I do think that, um, the, the your first book really is great because of that. I think, I think it, those, those widening moments are so productive and have a lot of integrity. And I w I'm really curious to see how the reception of your book among specialists in an African continent literature, how they see that dimension of the comparativist, you know, the Southern, the Western, the Eastern African. Yeah, um, no, it, it, it's an important point. And it's something that, um, you know, I'm thinking about a lot right now because I'm writing a book right now ostensibly on a single figure and of course it's never just on a single figure um you know you're, you're always trying to make it do more and, and other um but the trade-offs between depth and breadth for this book um were now not just about moving between different traditions or locations but between different kind of dominant practitioners of different fields so if you start writing about Kwesi Redu, as I do quite a lot in the first full chapter of my book, although he also appears a few times in the introductory chapter, um, you know, you could easily be in conversation only with a hardcore Redu specialist, who, I mean, it's mm -hmm. Barry Hallen or someone like that, who's written a book on Redu that's revising an earlier book on Redu, um, and you're yeah. never going to go quite that deep. In yeah. a different, you know, in, in the kind of project that I'm doing. At the same time, I want him to be able to get a foothold in it. So, yeah. okay, how do you figure out where that place is? Um, in a chapter where I'm writing about contemporary um, Southern African fiction, um, so Tendai Buchu uh, in the Zimbabwean diaspora, Imran Kuvadia, who's still very much located in South Africa, in Cape Town, um, Masanda and Shanga, uh, who's moving between, you know, a, a kind of intra-regional focuses in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So he's very much an Eastern Cape novelist in some ways. You could yeah. find specialists doing incredible work 
in each of those respective traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, on the chapter level, on the sub-chapter level, you know, e- each of your individual chapter sections, you're trying to say, okay, who are my audiences here, right? Who are my ideal readerships? And what do I do to bring mm-hmm. them onto something like a, a same page? Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's in- incredibly anxiety-inducing, um, angsty even. I tell graduate sure. students, who are really working in a comparative vein that this is going to be the story of their career so just to get used to it um, you're never going to know um, if you've done the best that you can on that depth breadth trade-off i think yeah um, but again that's something that i think comparative literature in particular and philosophy also have in common um, because you do have an eye to the universal if you will which is something different than the global you know and that's the whole different mm-hmm, conversation mm-hmm at the same time as you are always going to be um, inviting criticism from people who are single single writer specialists um, yeah. or, or single philosopher specialists, right? Absolutely. And I, I you know, I really, uh, with my own students, but also as a professional, uh, talk about, um, I think it's, so much more important to be interesting than to be right. (laughs) And um, that's a self-serving characterization as someone who cares myself uh, so much about comparative study, because, um, you know, all the stuff you're talking about, that those are risks, but they're risks in the name of interesting insights that then for microscopic or, or hyper specialists or single focus specialists will risk always being wrong. But that that relationship between uh, being right and being interesting, I think, is interesting. So, well, so you, you can't take every box, kind of thing. That, that's absolutely absolutely the case, I think, for both of the kind of work that we do. But at its best, what it means to me is being able to um, generate some terms for people to know that they're in shared conversations um, who might not actually have had those terms before. So when an African novelist who is invested in philosophy in an explicit way, again, mm-hmm. I, you can get into the weeds very quickly with what counts as philosophy and, and all of that. And, and I do address that somewhat in the book, but, but, but I think that conversation um, gets away from itself. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, someone who's saying, okay, we're going to have a scene or a chapter where I'm deliberately cordoning off philosophical practice in a way that, yes, I know isn't reflective of how people are in the world. We, we, we can't cordon off what's an idea from what's an embodiment. No, but we can do it as an experiment on a page. Yeah. That is kind of the same analytic operation as someone like Kwame Epia, who is saying, okay, I'm going to take this particular definition of personhood um, or of a soul or, or a will from the Akan intellectual tradition. So he has an essay mm-hmm. on something in Akan thought called the Sun Sun which is, I think, will is probably the best translation um, that I absolutely love. And I'm going to cordon it off from lived experience in a way that, again, I know isn't reflective of how we live, but serves some really useful analytic purpose. Mm-hmm. So Kwame Appiah, you know, kind of early comparatist, you know, kind of almost pre-public intellectual Kwame Appiah, mm-hmm. is doing something that should be extremely resonant to the contemporary African novelist that I'm dealing with. And they may not be reading each other. And so I can have, I think, you know, kind of a a humble, in some ways, purpose of saying, hey, let me show you what you're both doing, that you're not quite aware that you're both doing. And if I can do that, then I'll feel like I've I've done something worthwhile with the book. 
great. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if, you know, the, the title, uh, part of the title and, uh, African novel of ideas, um, you know, I, what I like about what you've said so far is how the depth you're giving to that phrase ideas or that term ideas and that phrase novel of, of ideas. But I want to talk about the subtitle or ask you about the subtitle. Uh, my favorite part of the subtitle is this phrase, the age of global writing, mm-hmm. a super suggestive phrase. And so I'm curious to hear what you mean by it. Um, and, you know, why you think it's important for us to think about global writing um, and how that notion of global writing frames or forms your reading of the novels. And I'm thinking about it because, you know, and this is, of course, you know, everybody reads from their own intellectual position as sort of hermeneutics 101. But, it, you know, that, that, fr- that sense of global writing did resonate for me as something akin to what Glissant calls Toumont, right? Which mm-hmm. is a thought that's engaged with the entire world, mm-hmm. but also has the intimacy of social and cultural forms of life that aren't, you know, generalizable, universal, right? So there's a sense of the global that's um, not evoking this sense of comparativist that's all about creative risk-taking, but instead a different kind of intensification of that, where you're not outside the globe, but it's also not the globe as a sort of space of radical difference that has to be creatively put into contact. So just, it's really just a question to how do you think about the age of global writing and how it functions in the book. It's in the subtitle, so clearly yeah, <laughs> it's the right. frame and, of the book. And the subtitle for for what it's worth was initially intellection in the age of global writing, but as anyone listening to this who has published a book will know, no publisher is gonna let you get away <laughs> with having a word like intellection in your book title. So see, I would have loved that, but yeah, no, that's never the publisher's never gonna yeah, go for that. Yeah, no, we, we we need we need some keywords, baby. Um so Globality, to me, is a foregone conclusion. And I don't mean that in an obviously uh, positive or negative way. It's neither an endorsement um, nor a critique. It just is, right? Globalization is is a done deal Um, in an economic sense. Globalization is a done deal, I think, arguably in terms of uh, the constitution of something like a religious identity um, on the African continent, which I'm working a lot with. In my current project, we know things are syncretic. There's no going back on this. Um, And we know we exist in um, an age of self-conscious networks. So not that networks haven't been there for a very long time, and and I'm not going to kind of get into all the debates about when we can talk about globalization happening. Is it 1492? Is it before? Is it after? Is it the Enlightenment? And people have much, much, um, much stronger dogs in in that fight than I do. Um, But Whenever you date it, or to, to whenever you date it, no one's arguing, I think, at this point that we don't live in some kind of globalized world. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's not always the most meaningful facet of people's lives, and it's certainly not always the most meaningful facet of anyone's intellectual practice. Um, and so you can't jump right to the big picture, right? I mean, the, the map with all of the points, you know, discrete points filled in um, and make any sense of it without figuring out where you want to go hard and, you know, kind of go deep um, in the tiny, tiny, tiny portions of a map um, that require uh, an intense zoom 
or yeah. um, a different focalization. And that certainly is part of what, when I teach goes on to undergraduates, for example, um, we talk about Zoom lenses and what is the right setting for them. Um, mm -hmm. One example that I use with them for Tumond actually has been thinking about um, those maps on, on flights where you see a flight map start off yeah. with point A and point B, and then the routes get filled in, and then the entire thing gets dark until you actually just see this kind of almost solid-seeming mass. Yeah. Um, and, and, and where do we figure out how to disaggregate, you know, um, and, and giving them an actual visual to work with that, which has been, yeah. it's been helpful in like an intro to literary studies kind of class. Um, but I just don't find globality particularly interesting, to be, to be totally frank. Um, I find people who are aware of it and trying to do something else more interesting on the whole. People who say, yeah, I know, um, everything is awash in movement and flux at all times. Um, but actually, when I have my most generative moments, right, for, for, for thinking and for interacting with other people, we have to kind of bracket that out of the picture um, and, and figure out how to think otherwise. That's what I wanted to do with this book and to some degree even with the first book. Um, and then let the connections kind of generate themselves. So what I wanted to do with the subtitle is say, okay, in the age of global writing, um, as in an age in which there is no such thing by some definition as a non-global novel, um, yeah. personally, I'd favor a more specific kind of generic identification of what that means. But we live in the, the world system. Um, arguably, everything that seems not global is in interaction with and or even being generated by things that more evidently are, um, I just don't have a lot to say about it, right? <laughs> and yeah. I, the texts that I'm drawn to don't have a lot to say about it. Um, they and do have a lot to say about sitting in stillness with one's thoughts and trying to unpack them into some kind of usable form, but that, 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 that presupposes uh, the possibility of non-instrumentalism or abstraction before you get to that usability. And that's yeah. where I wanted to, to remain. And this is, I mean, there are, you know, big uh, intellectual and sort of history of ideas, uh, things at stake in this. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. particularly about, you know, somebody like Fanon, who is a Caribbean writer, but also the, you know, his, I think in some ways, the great inheritor in Africa of Fanon's thought, Sheila Mbembe, yeah, yeah. interested in, for all the, the concerns about the local and the continental, continental meaning continental Africa, for all the continental concerns, is also reckoning with this uh, question of humanism. Right, a humanism after colonialism, after European hegemony, and so forth. But that's running alongside something like uh, Nguji's notion of decolonizing the mind, which, you know, in both that book by that title, but also his literary practices in the sort of second half or, or even more of his career has been, uh, is, is in his literary practice. Um, is concerned with the local and the vernacular rather than the general and the universal, even if that general and universal in the case of Mbembe or Fanon is something to come, right? It's a post-revolutionary accomplishment. But that tension between the an aspiration or a conversation about the universal and an intensification of the vernacular, uh, that tension to me is really interesting and productive. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in some ways I just ask you what where you see your own work in relation to that and maybe not just your own work in relation to that but the novels that you're talking about where do they stand in terms of that 
you know, sort of post-1960 debate in, in sub-Saharan Africa about post-colonial identity and post-colonial cultural production, because you're not talking about, you know, mid-century novels, uh, you know, that's not your focus. It's not in this sort of transitional period. And so how do the, how do these novels, are they a sort of new horizon of African literature? It gets outside that, or is it situated in that, I don't even want to call it attention, but that conversation about the sort of future universal and the hyper-localization of vernacular cultural production and identity. Yeah. Uh, um, so if I can be a little bit schematic to start off this answer, and I'm sure you know, I'll, be, I'll be dinged for it, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway because time is not infinite, right? Um, I would, if I had to, if pressed, divide African literature, you know, extremely broadly speaking, um, into three big eras uh, or moments. The first is what I'm working on now in my third book on J.E. Casely Hayford and um, the afterlives of something called the Fonte Confederation on the Gold Coast is the creation of, of vernacular um, as a facet of an explicitly literary or intellectual culture. Of course, people spoke Fonte or Chi before then, um, but it, it hadn't been standardized as a language um, and it hadn't been discussed in self, self-conscious terms of its, its intellectual significance. Um, before arguably the end of the 19th century and the very early decades of the 20th century. Um, But it's ultimately about, in that era, how to make the vernacular do something grand. So Casely Hayford is a great point of illustration here because he really does see Fonte and, again, the kind of creation and standardization of a vernacular language and literary and intellectual culture um, as the way to <laughs> save the British Empire, for one, and that's uh, another topic for another day, but also to reach this this redemption, essentially, um, of, of civilization with a capital C. Yeah. And then you have um, the big moment of decolonization, properly speaking, right, kind of formal decolonization, which is what I, as you know, in passing, skip in the book. I've written about it plenty elsewhere, as any African literature scholar has, but you have the Ache, you know, Achebe and Shayinka and the rise of um, um, often the Nigerian kind of ethnographic novels. Um, and then Ngugi comes in sort of on the tail end of that. Um, and that is a period of reclamation, of reinvigoration, reassertion, right? And I think when it falls short, it, it ends up being a, because it's about reassertion and reclamation kind of for its own sake. And it's easy to lose sight of, okay, well then what, what does it do uh, conceptually, analytically? Um, I mean, it's clear oftentimes what it does politically. Um, and that's, that's good, right? I mean, people are doing things that in large part, you know, I don't, I agree with, but it also can, it also can become a kind of ethno-nationalist dead end. And sure. I, 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 I will win enemies saying this, but I, I tend to think that that's where Googie sometimes ends up, right? I mean, it, it, it's just, sort of championing <laughs> um, and, and championing, okay, but but you can only do so much with championing as, as a literary scholar or an intellectual historian. And then what I'm interested in is contemporary writers who are kind of, or, or recent writers, who are working in a hyper-local uh, vein, oftentimes moving between, in and, in and out of African languages. Um, you know, Ted Huch is a great example, kind of, we'll just throw a passage of Shona in. But it's not for its own sake. It's just because it's a pretty organic part of how they think. Um, Jennifer Nantabuga Mukumbi, another great example. It's a, you know, Chintu, this book I write about, is an incredibly local Ugandan novel. 
Um, but it's also just because that's what it takes for her to figure out what, in my reading, is the distinction between reason and rationality, right? It's just mm-hmm. necessarily a part of it. Yeah. Um, and so I see this really important connection between the beginning of the 20th century um, and what happens, you know, heading into now full steam, the 21st century, where the vernacular is, is uh, people, that's it's probably not the word I would use, the, the, the local um, is very much present, but it's present because it is necessary to have intellection, to represent yeah. intellection. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a little bit different than it being important because it achieves uh, some clear political or even sort of political epistemological goal. And that's yeah. not to say that that wasn't important, it, that it wasn't necessary. Absolutely not. Um, but I, I, I'm personally trying to write about something um, a little um, less self-evident, right? A, 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 a little bit denser, I guess, in terms of what locality does in these texts. So let me let me follow that up with a question about another sort of big term pro, uh, question about the project, because um, that, that I'm I'm really happy I asked you about that sort of local global um, and aspirations of of literary practices because that it, that response for me is is you know whatever that means for listeners who who uh, think about African literature and periodized differently aside. It raises some really interesting ideas about the, the you know, the sociological character of of literature and and other forms of thinking, other ways of thinking about uh, cultural production. And so, the another, in in some ways, a kind of uh, trio that underlies exactly what you were talking about is this um, distinction. And I'll just say really quickly what I mean by each term, just to be clear because they, they themselves are, are terms for debate. But this relationship between uh, anti-colonial, decolonial, and post-colonial, right? Where anti-colonial is characterized primarily by negation or opposition, right? Mm-hmm. Decolonial, which is thinking about how to write, how to mm-hmm. think, you know, how to, how to produce culture uh, without the metropole. So thinking without... Uh, colonial hegemony as a center, mm. or even, I think, oftentimes in its most radical forms, not thinking with the center at all. And this notion of the post-colonial, which was, you know, the trending term in the 90s, but I think has gotten sort of marginalized, I think really unfortunately, uh, which is really this space of, of thinking about what it means to work outside the anxieties of colonialism, that one has to always work through those affects and effects. So those are, you know, I mean, I think they're obviously deeply intertwined, but the anti-colonial, the decolonial, and the post-colonial are such powerful ways of talking about the Atlantic world in general. And I'm curious how those terms resonate in this particular project of yours. Sure, sure. And it, it, it's, oh man, it's such a fraught, the the, the decolonial debates right now, um, you know, I, I taught a graduate seminar called the Decolonial Intellectual, and it was an attempt to um, work with both decolonial thought, but also think about the um, material circumstances and really, I mean, institutional circumstances in histories of decolonial intellectuals. Um, and one of the students said to me at one point, God, it, it seems like, you know, everyone has three different versions of what they think decolonial means, and they will go to the death for any one of them on any given day. And, and I do often feel like that. And watching some of these debates unfold over the past two years, I've I feel like the intellectual version of a social media lurker 
where I, I, I'm just fascinated by, by, by seeing the exchanges and, um, and, and, and I don't feel perhaps oddly a, a particularly strong commitment to kind of what, what I mean by, by decolonial. Um, I would describe the African novel of ideas as a decolonial book that focuses on writers and, and intellectuals, because it's about philosophers as well, African philosophers, who have been in their own careers and their own lives, either anti-colonial or simply kind of not colonial. <laughs> um, but, but, but by which I mean, again, going to the sort of more recent writers who are, I suppose, in terms of um, periodicity, post-colonial, and that, yes, they still live very clearly in the afterlives of colonial institutional histories, um, funding paradigms, all these sorts of things. You know, but my book is not a material history, right? And I, I would very, very readily grant that we are in um, post-colonial times still. Um, in, in the sense that that field at its most salient intends it, um, without necessarily thinking that I wrote a post-colonial book. Um, it, it, it's about decolonization as the modeling of um, what may be an unrealistically level playing field. Because again, we have the luxury as, as scholars, as intellectuals, um, as, as philosophers, even in terms of some of my, my subjects in the book, of doing that. Right? We have the luxury of writing in a way, of analyzing in a way, of sorting out in a way that is not necessarily reflective of you know, highly still unequal um, and many times just straight up orientalizing you know, is a word I, I might use, uh, material and institutional circumstances. And I don't think that that in any way needs to be a disavowal of the very important politics of rectifying those institutional circumstances. Um, okay. I think it nonetheless says that we need to have a lot of uh, intellectual irons in the fire to make that feel like something that's truly worth doing. So the model of decolonization that I am most attracted to is Kwesi Oredo's, um, and he talks about decolonization as the process of ensuring the possibility for Africans, and, and ideally for everyone, of due reflection. That's the phrase he uses. I was sort of meditating about it in one of my increasingly rare <laughs> Facebook appearances the other day. And he says, it, it, it's due reflection. It's not saying that you yeah. need to reinstantiate, uh, you know, you, you, you only abide by Akan principles, because I assure you a lot of people are going to be really fucked over by that. Um, and it's not saying that you need to just, okay, give up. We've been so thoroughly colonized um, that there's no way out of this total... Uh, you know, imbrication with colonial norms. Yeah. So we need to just kind of do forward thinking, which would be some version of the kind of Africa rising ethos or, or, or politics. He's saying we need to do whatever we can to line up the operative concepts and terms on either side of that, yes, naively or unrealistically differentiated equation, and then put them head to head, toe to toe. Um, and figure out what we're prepared to defend on equal or kind of lateral grounds. And I think that that is an unbelievably noble and kind of rigorous goal. Um, and that's what I try to do in the book, right? Um, and to narrow it down further, what I try to do in the book is to say, well, can we have a sort of decolonial liberalism? Um, can we go through different places where... Um, African writers and African philosophers who are inarguably locally 
grounded and, and enmeshed, right? By which I mean that their point of departure is on the continent, first and foremost. And of course, it's inflected by other places and other processes. Sure. But they're starting from there in just a very literal way. I'm working with writers who are, for the most part, located there. Um, and, and philosophers for at least the majority of their their careers, and certainly um, that's why their books tend to to be oriented. Um, for them to say, I'm doing something that seems really liberal, uh, but I'm doing it from here to these ends. Uh, so uh, does that count, right? Does does that get roped in with a sort of grand um, critique of, of liberalism um, from some of the books that I, I survey from um, contemporary post-colonial and or black or ethnic studies? Um, and, and I think the answer is very clearly no. Um, and so you have liberalism and then you have liberalism. And to, in a way to fashion, we go through it and we map out well, what it means here and what it means there, put them head to head and figure out which one you're prepared to stand by and which one you're prepared to defend. Um, and I don't know, decolonization to me has to be that. Or yeah. again, you run into this ethno-nationalist trap, you know, so it's a sort of dead end um, or a process that doesn't know quite where it's going. And I think there has to be some sort of end game in mind to make it meaningful. Fascinating. No, I, I, that's really interesting. It's a lot to think about. And, you know, it gets into this, um, you know, and I, I hate to be trite about it, but in some ways I think trite is really um, trite, you know, simple statements of it are, are instructive. But essentially when, what you're saying in that is, you know, we have to take African writers seriously. Right. <laughs> you know, which is they, they may have maps that drill down into where they write from rather than outward to their colonial occupation. And and I think that, you know, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the debates about what decolonial means, I think, are totally interesting. But of course, it's academia during a pandemic and it has to be a bloodbath. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say when I see that, I, as someone who went to graduate school in the early to mid-90s, um, the bloodbath of what was meant by deconstruction um, has no peer, but we may be approaching that in debates about the decolonial and the post-colonial. You know, I, I, I personally think so. Um, and it's a shame because on a very basic level, what I wanted this book to do was to maybe just, if, if nothing else, show some literary or critical theory scholars that are interested in African textual production, what African philosophers, and they may not have read, thought decolonization was, yeah. um, and, and, and how we can still work with some of those definitions today. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these, these there's a lot of deja vu for me right now, because I thank God, you just need to go back into the African philosophy um, debates of the the 90s and decolonization was debated I think by someone like Redu or Jeche or Apio or Eze um, and there are many many more I mean Sophie Olawole a lot more rigorously uh, you know again kind of part of it's because of where it was located um, in terms of disciplinarity um, part of the fact that it was seen as a sort of disciplinary conversation, I think, and not this kind of free-floating um, or, or, or a kind of cathexis point for free-floating anxiety about the, the failure of discipline, so that it's a mm -hmm. big, big difference in the positionality of, of what the decolonial is. Um, but, but I do think we're at an inflection point, and maybe the best thing I can do as a scholar, and that many of us can do who have worked on this stuff, you know, for a long time, is to cite some actual examples of what 
other people, you know, um, Bia and Jfo, um, you know, kind of wrote wonderful stuff on this that I almost never see cited, which sure. they thought decolonization was, um, yeah. and that we don't need always to invent the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that in that sense, just a, a, a revivification of sure. old pieces, old articles. I've tried to just share a lot of things with my students, for example, that I don't think they're going to encounter elsewhere can maybe be more more useful than, um, you know, duking it out on, on Twitter. Or, or <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right on that. <laughs> so I want to uh, read this uh, passage um, uh, from the conclusion, which I think is really uh, fantastic. Um passage it really struck me it's on page 187 for anyone who has the book and wants to to read it in context so i'm going to read it and just ask you to to say a few words about it you know what you had in mind or why you know what you think about this um i really liked it because it gets to this way in which the book takes african thought seriously as a way of you know for you as an author of thinking about the thought Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that premise of, you know, these works don't need any redemption from the outside. Yeah. You know, that's why I like the decolonial as a characterization. That's the way I read the book. It was very decolonial in that it doesn't refer to anything outside of itself, you know, for justification. So I'm going to read this um, uh, now and then just ask you uh, your thoughts. Sure. You write, this is not to indicate that Africa is somehow less philosophical than anywhere else. The African Novel of Ideas, the title of the book, I hope has led its readers to the opposite conclusion. On the contrary, I mean to position African writers at what is perhaps an alarming vanguard. I love that phrase, alarming vanguard. (laughs) A philosophical selfhood with worldly and narrative force would now appear to be a globally fantastic premise. Yeah, this is where I'm going to get to going to get a little more polemical. Um, um, I, 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 I think I, I, I think that the, the networked condition as, um, as reified, and I do mean that in the sort of old school sense of, of the term, um, via social media especially, but um, by, by connectivity uh, in a much grander sense, right? People just kind of constantly immersed in short form, um, inattentive processes, and I count myself in this uh, you know, fully. I am I am not claiming in any way to kind of hover beyond um, these, okay. these, these uh. processes, um, but I do think that it makes serious, meaningful intellection really, really, really fucking hard, um, bordering on impossible. And every writer that I am in conversation with, and I, and I mean, very literally in conversation with, you know, frequently we'll just talk about you know, where do we stand and what are we thinking about? Um, it's a part of my extended intellectual community that I count myself extremely lucky to have. Um, hi, 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 Tembe. Um, has to shut off their devices and shut off their social media and go away sometimes into, I mean, hermeticism to be able to write. Um, and and just to be able to figure out what they what they want their interiority to 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 do for them, you know, and, and the process of thinking. Um, and I realize that's not a novel point. Um, it might even sound glib. 
um, it's very easy to push back on and say, oh, well, no, this sort of, you know, kind of uh, hyper-connected, virtualized world is also a, a source of real democratization. And I hear all that, you know, I, I, I get it. But at the end of the day, the cognitive, intellectual, intellectual, and of course, ultimately political effects are so profound, so profound that I think we're only just beginning to reckon with them. Um, there's a great book by Richard Seymour that I like a lot called The Twittering Machine, and it's a sort of extended philosophical and historical essay that uses Twitter, um, but really as a way into thinking about what um, what virtuality means for just habits of mind um, and the possibility to even think in terms of something like having deliberate habits of mind. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, and here, I, I, I you know, I... <laughs> This is going to be untenable in the amount of time that we have, but 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 I'll, I'll go there anyway. I don't think it's a coincidence. At the same time as we are all, and I really do mean almost all. I mean, you can go to um, Elmina, you know, where my husband's family is from, and and, and go to a, a fishing dock and see people on their phones. Um, so it's just yeah. incredibly pervasive. Um, this is when a lot of the most penetrating novels uh, coming from the continent that I've read, and I keep up with African literature pretty well, you know, are from small and sometimes uh, fringe presses, and they tend to feature characters who are socially isolated, in some cases completely socially alienated by their insistence on intellection. So there are all the texts that I do write about in, um, in my book, but there are also so many others just for for want of space and time, um, I didn't include. So uh, a couple of them I do mention in the conclusion that you just read from um, a book like Bajo, um, a Burundian novel where the quote philosophical character is a pariah, just outright pariah, right? And, and, and that's kind of the precondition um, of his being able to, to be this deep thinker um, and to be able to systematize his own thoughts. Um, a book like Jumoka Verasimo's um, A Small Silence, where as uh, a professor who was imprisoned in the, I, I think it was the Abacha years in, in Nigeria, gets out and he hasn't been brought into this, you know, new sort of hyper-aware, hyper-connected world. And so he has to sit in his house in darkness because he actually can't afford electricity. And that's how he's able to kind of systematize his own thoughts. And the list goes on and on and on. There are so many examples that I could give you. It's not a coincidence. I, I, I'm sorry, it's not. The, the conditions of being able to capture something like um, intellection are increasingly extreme um, yeah. and, and, and increasingly marginal to the main line of literary production and to the main line of just, just living, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so that is what I'm talking about in that phrase and this kind of alarming vanguard. Where yeah. I could write a sort of celebratory article and, and, and have um, um, about the incredible flourishing of, yeah, thinking about thoughts in these small press novels. But at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily sure that this is a good thing because I don't know what it means for the possibility of, of being able to, to read um, or really just of being able to think and uh, watch your thoughts unfurl in a way that someone else might be able to make some sense of, right? I mean, I read a lot of novels these days that are kind of these phenomenological blurs. I think the phrase I, I used earlier, and they're interesting, they're, they're, they're provocative, um, but they're very hard for me to get any real traction with. Huh. Interesting. That's, uh, 
That's fascinating. <laughs> Conditions of writing in the 21st century are, 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 I think, you know, as you articulated really well, uh, their own sort of philosophical problem. And then um, when uh, I'll put my, my, my hot take would be that Quasi Redu could not exist on, on Twitter, period. Yeah. <laughs> and Claude, as Afrikaners would say. And um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure where we go from there, frankly. So let me ask you a, a final question. Um, it had two parts initially when I was thinking about it. Where do you think the book leaves us as readers? But I think you've uh, articulated that really clearly. But I'm curious for you, uh, where does this book leave you? I mean, the difference but overlap between your first and second book is, is I think, really interesting. And you spoke to that in, at the outset. And I'm curious what's next you've sort of suggested. But I want to give you a little bit of space to, to, to sketch out where the books of this idea or the ideas of this book are taking mm-hmm. you in terms of your well, next book you of that. ideas. No, I, I, I'm grateful for any chance. I, I, in the, um, I'm in the sort of really early uh, book researching and book writing phase of, of unyielding obsession. I'm sure you know what I mean. <laughs> um, with, with the next project, which I'm tentatively calling J.E.K. Salih Hayford, um, ecumenical modern colon ecumenical modern. I can almost guarantee you that the publisher is not going to let ecumenical stand in the title the same way that intellection was not able to stand in the I'll title. Publish it with a Catholic university press; they'll, they'll go with it. But otherwise, you might be in trouble. Yeah. Dear Notre Dame, Alistair <laughs> exactly. McIntyre, interested? Yeah. Um, but I have now speaking of the aperture. Um, um, allegory that we used or metaphor that we used earlier kind of gone gone back in and, and narrowed it further um than my first book was even in terms of how close to the um close to the the ground the traditions involved were and i'm writing about jay casely hayford who was this at the time you know incredibly famous um incredibly influential gold coast funty statesman and writer uh he wrote arguably the first African novel in English, although there are a lot of fancy passages as, as well. Um, there were some things that were serialized in the Gold Coast press before that, but the first sort of novel really published as a novel and circulated as such in the title. Um, I'm writing a literary biography of him that is really a biography, I hope, of a moment in a sort of Stefan Zweig sense almost of what was this Fanti Confederate era of the late 19th, kind of into early 20th century, um, how did it use habits of mind to take that that phrase, which were of central importance to him and, and his writing, thinking about how to train himself to think well. Um, and for him, thinking well meant not just in a way that allowed him to be a highly productive writer, but also in a way that allowed him to sort out his thoughts enough to take really, really... Um, forceful political action, political is too broad here, really kind of bureaucracy building action. He was a decolonizer in this very, very material kind of logistical sense, right? You know, kind of what's the relationship between the width of the streets that we're, we're, we're planning in the Gold Coast um, to how I sit and think in my study uh, to, to, wow. to, okay. to, be really, to be really bold about it. Um, but what did this era mean for how intellectual history ended up um, bringing different kinds of the African humanities together into the more famous era of the mid 20th century. Um, so Kwiku Labi Korang has done some of this work um, in a really wonderful book um, called, uh, I think, Imagine a Ghana, um, sorry, Imagine a Ghana Writing Af- 
imagining modernity, writing Ghana, writing Ghana, imagining Africa. We're all pandemic. I have a three and a half year old. I'm very sorry for <laughs> reshuffling his title. Um, but there's so, so, so much more to be done. Um, so it'll be something of an intellectual history, something of a literary biography, um, and a kind of story of how habits of mind generated in this real period and, and kind of intellectual circle around the city of Cape Coast in the present day Ghana, so on the Atlantic um, seaboard, generated a bureaucracy. It generated a state. Um, so how, how did... Um, explicitly doing intellectual history and explicitly theorizing habits of mind, explicitly theorizing character, bringing um, the conditions for independent Ghana into existence. Um, that's the, that, that's the gist. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds excellent. I know I speak for everybody who, who hears your pitch on that and uh, uh, saying uh, we really, I, I look forward to, I'm sure, Lots of us are looking forward to that. Uh, again, one of these uh, moments where you're picking up something of critical importance, but also something that's largely uh, not circulating in terms yeah, of- a- not, not, not circulating, um, unfortunately, and yet circulating without people realizing that it is. So exactly. every Perfect. single time I read something on, and you know, <laughs> there's great work on Kwame Nkrumah, but I just think Kwame Nkrumah was not born like Athena, you know, for- fully formed <laughs> from, yeah. from, from Zeus. Um, and the micro history of the Gold Coast is just massively important. Also for, for, from, from a disciplinary perspective, um, everything that we now know as kind of African studies, right? Uh, um, I, I think to my mind kind of begins here. Um, and yet it's been relegated to a very specialist domain. People who work on it work on it very, very deeply. Um, but a lot of the best materials on him and on this era are out of print. They only circulate in Ghana, if that. Um, so I think it's high time for a book that can, as we talked about, kind of reach multiple readerships that have more passing investments or interests in West Africa and tell them how important this this period was. Absolutely agree. So we'll wrap up. Um, I did want to say I'm so glad you you brought up multiple times Kwasi uh, Wiredu, may rest in peace. I, I think it's important in this moment to to mark that. And Jean-Marie, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and sharing these thoughts, which are uh, absolutely fascinating and fantastic. Uh, Great book and uh, great to hear you talk about it. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Obviously, this has been a hell of a few years and the opportunities to talk like this, to riff, to say things that, you know, you might revise (laughs) 10 minutes later, but that you're really glad to have had the chance to, to be live about. And those opportunities have been woefully few and far between. So I am just really, really grateful for having had the chance to do it. Well, you're welcome. It's uh, all for our benefit. Thank you. Thanks so much, John. The story of the novel as it approaches global modernity has often been told as the story of representational failure. From Adorno to Achebe, Raymond Williams to Volushoyinka, long-form narrative is cast as the genre par excellence of civilizational elegy and disruption. It is, quoting Lukács' foundational The Theory of the Novel, the epic of an age in which the extensive totality of life is no longer directly given, yet which still thinks in terms of totality. The form imagined this way is a record of striving through loss, climaxing in the convergence of modernist and late and post-imperial accounts of cultural crisis, While African writing has been seen in the past 
as a next frontier or an antidote of sorts to Western philosophical ennui, the hyperconnectivity of the global or even post-global era, per Tejamola Alanian, demands more flexible models now. From this view, the recent flurry of international interest in a small cohort of global Afropolitan writers misses the real possibility of the moment. Instead of marking yet another turn in an, in, in an inverted historical progression that moves from a shadowy Western center to more enlightening peripheries, we should now be trying to figure out how the African novel, too, meaningfully fails. <laughs>